Greetings and welcome to the First Timothy Sermon Series here at Good Shepherd OPC, a mission work of Cornerstone here in Houston. My name is Miller Ansel, the church planning intern who delivers these sermons on Sunday evenings at 5 o'clock. Please check out our website at gsopc.org for more information on our evening worship as well as our midweek Bible study. And here is this week's sermon. Please remain standing and uh, turning your copy of Scripture to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, our Old Testament reading. So we're dealing with men in prayer and women in modesty. So let's read uh, from Proverbs 31 about the Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, Starting in verse 10, we'll read to the end of the chapter. This is God's holy word. Please give it your full attention as it is read. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night to provide food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and binds it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruits of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. Let's turn to our sermon text, 1 Timothy 2. First Timothy 2, I'll start in verse 8 and read to the end of the chapter. Although our sermon text is on the first three verses, 8, 9, and 10. But starting in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 2. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women 
who profess godliness with good works. As far as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let us pray. Our Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So may it be used this evening to open our eyes and guide us in life. Let this God-breathed word reprove us, correct us, and may we be trained more in righteousness through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the letter of 1 Timothy, it's a, it's a lot of back and forth. Uh, we're starting to see it as we go forward. We'll see some more of it. Uh, there are warnings against false teachers. And in response are commendations as to how the Christian ought to live in the church. Paul's telling Timothy, don't be like the false teachers. Instead, do what is proper in the church. Now, it's been a while since we've been in 1 Timothy. Uh, we finished chapter 1. Chapter 1 was one of those warnings. Don't be like the false teachers. And Paul turns in chapter 2 instead says, be like this. Yes, last time we were together, we uh, started chapter 2. And chapter 2 was about uh, prayer. And it was about Christ as the mediator. And now, in verses 8, 9, and 10, he begins to address men and women in the local church. This is going to great against our culture and against our society. Not just this week, but the upcoming weeks of sermons. Um, first of all, we're affirming that there are only two genders, two sexes. There are men and there are women. Secondly, we're affirming that certain sins are more prominent in men than women and other sins more prominent in women than in men. Here Paul tells us that men are given to anger and quarreling, and women are given to vanity and dress. Now is that to say that women never quarrel and men are never vain? Of course not. There are angry women, there are vain men, no doubt about it. But the general idea, if you get in your car and you drive to a nice restaurant uh, and you peek in, you're going to find more women dressed ostentatiously than men. And if you continue driving throughout the hours of the night, maybe a shady part of town, you're going to see more men fighting in the parking lots than women, generally speaking, yes? So, uh, certainly all men and women are guilty of these sins, but there are sins that are more prominent. So Paul, knowing our natural sinful dispositions as men and women, seeks to correct those proclivities and encourage us in godliness in the body of Christ. He's going to say, men, pray like this. Don't pray like that. And he's going to say, women, dress like this. Don't dress like that. So first, he tells us how men ought to pray. Paul has already uh, started to address prayer in the beginning of chapter 2. right? He urged prayer for all types of people, those in high places, those in low places. Prayer for Jews and prayer for Gentiles, all types of people. 
Now in verse 8, we see that prayer is not only for all types of people, but it's to be had in all types of places. We are to pray everywhere, in every place, he says. It could be in the synagogue. It could be in the house church. It could be on the mountain, in the plain. It could be in the garden. Everywhere men are to pray. Men, do we find it important to pray in every place? Do we find prayer important at all? <clears throat> Too often, Christians can claim to believe the gospel, to claim to believe in Jesus Christ, yet have no interest in prayer. And let that not be us. Let us be men who pray everywhere and not give into a disdain or find displeasure in prayer. We need to recognize how privileged we are to have that liberty to pray everywhere through our great mediator, Jesus Christ. Under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, certainly people prayed in their homes. We read of David praying in a cave. People could pray everywhere. But it was really at the temple in Jerusalem that they could really offer that prayerful sacrifice to God through the human priests. They had to have that priestly mediator at the temple. Remember Jonah when he prays in chapter 2. Uh, talk about praying anywhere. Praying in the belly of a fish in the bottom of the sea. What does he pray? He says, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. That sign is important. There's always a sign needed to direct God's people in their prayers. And that sign used to be the temple. That's why Jonah brings it up. It's very important. That is the presence of God. That is where the priests are that are mediating. But now that Christ has come, Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the perfect priest. He is the son that we may go to God in every place. We don't have to conjure up images of the temple like Jonah any longer. We can simply pray in Jesus' name. Right? That's why we pray in Jesus' name, because he is the mediator. He is the sign and symbol that we can go to him. So brothers, we no longer need that pageantry of the temple. Lots of uh, groups that claim to be Christian love the pageantry of the Old Testament temples, but we don't need that to pray anymore. We don't have to keep the outward signs and symbols of Old Testament worship. All we need is Jesus Christ, who has fulfilled these signs and symbols in order that we can pray in every place. So let us not just pray on the Lord's Day. Let's not just pray in the church building. But let us uh, know that our prayers are heard everywhere by our Father in heaven because of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. And on the issue of praying in every place, there is one note that I'd like us to file away today and in the coming weeks. Um, because many are going to tell us in 1 Timothy that um, this was a cultural letter. It was meant for Timothy. It was meant for Ephesus. And it was meant in the first century. And everything's kind of kept there. That uh, it's not for us. That qualifications and the commands, say, for church office coming up were uh, not meant for us today. But the fact that Paul tells Timothy to pray everywhere, in every place, 
Men can pray everywhere, not just in Ephesus, not just in the first century. We're not limited. We can pray in every place. It shows us that this letter is not bound by culture. It's not bound by time. It's not bound by location. It's for the church universal. It's for you and me today so that we can still pray in every place, both in space and in time. We also read that men are to pray uh, lifting holy hands. This appears to be a praying posture of some Jews and Gentiles in antiquity. Uh, They would pray with their hands lifted up. Why would they do that? Um, It was to show and convey the idea that one's hands were clean before the Lord, that one was innocent as he prayed to God. Psalm 26.6 brings this out. The psalmist sings, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. You can see the importance of the altar in these prayers of washing his hands. Thus our Lord requires that men be innocent as they come before him. We can't come before the Lord angry and quarrelsome is what Paul says next. This is the the negative aspect of these prayers that Paul brings up. Uh, We have to come before him with innocent, clean hands. In Isaiah 1, we read of God's people trying to come before the Lord with bloody hands. In Isaiah 1, the church is paying lip service. They're performing empty rituals. And the Lord tells them to stop it. He says, don't lift up your bloody hands hands before me. Wash them before you come to talk to me. It's also very similar to what we learned in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, There we learned uh, we're not to pray while we're angry, specifically angry with our brother. Remember, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled with your brother. Same idea. If we're going to offer up prayer with clean, innocent hands, we need to be reconciled with one another. This is very important. Likely in Ephesus, the issue seems to be uh, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews are looking down upon the Gentiles. They're belittling them. They're little babies in the faith. They're still learning their ABCs. On the other hand, the Gentiles are... Uh, looking down upon the Jews, perhaps in a, a Romans 14 fashion, look at them with their ceremonies, those silly Jews. These brothers were not at peace. They were angry and they were fighting. But our Lord teaches us to pray our Father. We can't come before the Lord and say, my Father. These Gentiles uh, couldn't leave the Jews out of their prayers. They needed to be reconciled, not angry, not quarreling with one another. That is to say, we are not free to pray to God unless we are united with each other. This anger and quarreling is also, it's not just at the human level. It's also dealing with our relationship with God. We're not only patient with each other, but uh, we need to have patience and faith and wait upon the Lord. His ways are not our ways. Thus, we must not pray with doubt. Or let him know that we think better than him. It's not unusual. Growing up, I would hear this in churches, uh, encouraging young people to pray. Let God know what you think of him, even if you're upset. Tell him. 
Um, that's not honoring to God. To come to him in prayer, angry. It's really quite brazen to raise our fist against the Creator, thinking we know better. So let us pray, united to one another. And let us know that God does what is best for those who love him. When we do that, we can stand before God with clean, innocent, holy hands and pray to him in every place, knowing that God hears us because of the Son, that we pray through the Son to the Father. Let's turn now to the last two verses, 9 and 10. Uh, Just as Paul has warned men against wrath, He now warns women that their interest in beauty should not lead to immodesty and indiscretion. Let me remind you, uh, this is God's word. I'm merely a preacher of it. I'm not a patriarchal misogynist telling women how to dress. Harold telling you what the word of God says. A second issue just to get off on the table real quick, uh, women do not bear 100% of the guilt for a man's lust. If a woman dresses immodestly, she's 100% guilty of the sin of dressing immodestly. If a man lusts after her, he's 100% guilty of lust. Don't want you to think men get off scot-free in this incident. So, uh, no more on that. Our verse talks about modesty. What is modesty? We sat down as a group. Uh, Could we come up with rules for women's clothing, women's hairstyles, and women's jewelry? Without a doubt, such a task of making absolute universal rules down to every last centimeter and stitch and pin and needle of women's clothing is impossible. However, it is without a doubt that we can have valid overall principles. We find it in verse 9. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly a time. Listen, the way a woman dresses says what she wants to be known for and what she wants to draw attention to, whether that's outward or inward. The way a woman dresses says what she wants to be known for, what she wants to draw attention to, whether that's good and she wants to draw her inward beauty or outward, perhaps bad. Uh, These women in the first century with braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire, they wanted to be known for their wealth, wanted to be known for their ambition, for their vanity, perhaps a combination of all three of those. But is that to say that the Lord forbids uh, Christian women from wearing braids and gold and pearls and uh, so on? Uh, Certainly not. This is the reason. What Paul has in view, this is not a quick three-chord braid that most girls make. 
It's not even a complicated French braid. What he has in mind, the braids that Paul's talking about, these are incredible, ostentatious plates. This is plated hair that takes hours to make. And in these braided plates in the hair, the women would put gold and pearls and stones and jewelry and decorate uh, their hair. So you see, God is not, not anti-braided hair or anti-gold. Uh, heaven is described as streets of gold, pearly gates. Uh, the temple had gold. It's not an issue of being anti-gold, anti-pearls. This is a call against elaborate hairstyles ornate jewelry, and ridiculously expensive clothing because it takes up an inordinate amount of time, money, and effort. Not only that, really what Paul is describing was the common outfit of the uh, courtesans, uh, these high-class harlots. Remember, this is in Ephesus. What's in Ephesus? The Temple of Artemis, a.k.a. Temple of Diana. You have cult prostitution happen. The Christian women are not to resemble those unbelievers in their immodesty and their vanity. They are meant to be modest and sober in their dress. Right? And isn't that really the base of the issue? Modesty and self-control, they're key here as opposed to luxurious and immoderate expenses due to a desire to display pride. We see that prideful desire often in our culture. Come out to do phone board ministry at the Sugarland Town Square Friday and Saturday night. Uh, you'll find women desiring to show off, to impress. They might excuse themselves with the... Uh, Reason, well, I'm just dressing up for my husband. Perhaps, but uh, more often than not, deep down, the reason is to be attractive to others. We most certainly can agree with Pastor John Calvin, who in the 16th century uh, said in one of his sermons, Women today are wilder than ever. <laughs> The bottom line is this. Paul is not simply addressing the matter of dresses and skirts and necklines. He's addressing an overall manner of life. And there are two imports from this section concerning an overall manner of life. One is the physical, the other is the spiritual. So from verses 9 and 10, the physical, we see that women are to dress in modest, neat, plain clothing, as opposed to luxurious and costly clothing. Thus, the principle is that clothing, hairstyles, and jewelry are to be inexpensive, not extravagant. They're to be modest and not vain. They're to be chaste and not suggestive. I'm not saying you have to buy all your clothes at garage sales and thrift stores. I don't have a dollar amount to give you that is over the top and sinful. And obviously, we can say uh, 
the million dollar dresses we see at the Oscars are certainly uh, falling into this realm of a uh, sinful uh, dress. And uh, you know, if you're ever invited to the Oscars, avoid the million dollar dress. Um, but what I'm giving you is an overarching principle of modesty. Modesty in expenses and modesty concerning decency. So that's on the, the more physical side. <laughs> the second import from the passage is spiritual. Christian women are to present themselves godly and faithful. Some aspects of dress are culturally bound. That's fine. But the principle is timeless. That priority is to be given to the internal and that the external is to reflect the internal. It's much like the Proverbs 31 woman we read. Uh, how does she clothe herself? Strength and dignity are her clothing. She's not concerned with the latest excessive fads in the kingdom of Israel. She has godly strength. She has dignity. That's what she adorns herself with. Again, this is an issue of priority. We can't brush it aside. Priority has to be given to the spiritual. You might ask yourself, do I spend more time adorning my physical body than adorning my soul? The godly woman wakes up on the Lord's Day morning. She doesn't prioritize what earrings to wear, what gold bracelet, or how to do her hair. She wakes up prioritizing the spiritual, saying, I must be modest as God commands me, and I must have self-control, because that is the adornment of a godly woman. It's the world that attempts to garner praise and adulation through the external, but the Christian woman garners praise and adulation through her good works, as we read in verse 10. The worship service it's particularly important in this regard, as it is through the preaching of the word that women, and of course men as well, uh, learn what good works are required of them. It is primarily through the preaching of the word that the Holy Spirit is transforming us into the image of Christ, enabling us to do good works. And so you see, it is the local church that is to be a beauty parlor. Do you know you're in, a, you're in a beauty parlor right now? A prayerful beauty parlor for women and men. So I pray that the women here are encouraged tonight to adorn themselves with good works. I've been praying that the men would be encouraged to pray without anger, without quarreling. As we consider those two main points tonight, we would be remiss if we did not consider uh, and dwell upon our Savior Jesus Christ and how he handled these matters of prayer and adornment with good works. Jesus Christ was a man of prayer. He prayed in every place. In Luke 5, he prays in lonely places by himself. Other times in Luke 9, he would go up on a mountain to pray with others. He would pray in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Thus we see Jesus prays in every place as a perfect example to us 
as we ought to pray in every place. He also prays without anger or quarreling, particularly in reference to the Father. It's in that garden. We might expect some anger. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, knows he's about to be arrested, he's about to be tortured, and crucified. And he's an innocent man. If any man in history had a right in prayer to be angry and quarrelsome with the Father, it was Jesus Christ. What does he pray? He prays that the Father's will would be done and not his. Men, let us learn from our Savior. Not only to pray everywhere, but to trust the Lord and his perfect will. If the perfect man was not angry, what right would we have to be angry with God as fallen men? We cannot forget every good thing we have is from God's grace. We deserve none of it. So we need to pray without anger, without quarreling, able to lift holy hands before our Father who is in heaven. Let us also remember Jesus' outward adornment. Isaiah 53, 2 and 3, gives us some ideas to what Jesus, uh, his dress and appearance looked like, saying he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. There was nothing in Jesus' natural appearance that would draw us to him. And yet, because of his good works, because of that perfect life and obedience he lived, he's the most beautiful man. He is the best adorned man that ever lived. And so, when this passage in 1 Timothy gives women to pursue good works over outward beauty, we are to remember that That is what our Savior did. That is what he was like. Far more concerned about doing good and obeying the Father than his appearance. So just what was the obedience then? What were these good works that Christ did? Well, it was keeping God's law perfectly. It means he never sinned. We believe that he was a little child and never told a lie to his parents. He was a teenage boy who never lusted. He was a grown man who never coveted what his neighbor had. Can we say the same for ourselves? Far from it, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Friend, if you're here tonight thinking you're a good person, being a good person, that'll get you into heaven. I ask that you compare yourself to Jesus. When you do so, I think you find out you're really not that great of a person because we've all lied and lusted and coveted. But there's good news. Although we have sinned before God, we can still be clothed in God's righteousness. We can still be counted as perfect in God's sight through salvation in Christ. And that comes through faith, right? How do I do that? Have faith. 
through believing that we have sinned against God and trust in Christ alone for our salvation, for our righteousness. That's how we put on the salvation of Christ. That's how we can be truly beautiful and properly adorned. One more question. When would you say a woman feels most beautiful in her life? Quite likely, it's her wedding day. When we are clothed in good works, when we are clothed in salvation and righteousness, the scriptures tell us that we are like a handsome groom, that we are like a beautiful bride ready to be presented. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Brothers and sisters, the great marriage supper of the Lamb is coming, and we, the church, will be a beautiful bride. Not because we've adorned ourselves physically, not because we have natural beauty, but we will be adorned with that perfect salvation and that perfect righteousness of Christ. And then we'll be presented to Christ as his bride. It's good and fitting that a bride feel beautiful on her wedding day. But let us prepare ourselves for the great wedding day in heaven through good works done by us through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you united, lifting holy, innocent hands through Jesus Christ. We know that your word can be difficult sometimes, but we ask that these verses would be taken to heart, that we would practice them every day of our lives. Continue to teach the men to be at peace with you and with one another. Continue to teach the women modesty and good works. And may you continually prepare us all for the coming of our Savior, so that we may be presented as a beautiful bride. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and hasten that wedding day. It's in his name we pray. Amen.